Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. And today we continue the story of Russian colonization of Siberia. We're going to start with a bit of recap, but I would like to inform you that on the 27th, we will be participating in the online intellectual speech conference where we shall be talking about the hidden studies of the black market of the Soviet Union and the smuggling parts and all the interesting things. And if you want to participate, Go to intellectualspeech.com and purchase your tickets because this is a paid event organized by Royfield Brown of uh, U.S. President's fame. But it's going to be awesome and I'm going to be there together with a lot of your other favorite podcasts. But also we still have that Soviet soap that we have a lot of. If you want any, please let us know. We'll trade it for both cash and Warhammer 40k miniatures because, well, I kind of want to get back into the hobby. But for now, let's continue on with the show, and see you in the 27th. <clears throat> Initially, Moscow's knowledge of the lands and peoples to the northeast was obtained through the filter of Novgorod's contact, and later via Rostov's outpost at Ustyug. Direct contact by Moscow is seen only from 1333. At least until the 1320s, Novgorod was still trading with the Ugrians and represented the primary Russian contact with them. Then, in 1333, arising out of a dispute with Novgorod, the Muscovite prince began collecting tribute from the Vichegda Perm, that is, those Permians living along the Vichegda River, who occupied territory through which the Novogorodians passed on their way to trade with the Ugrians. Moscow's next advance to the northeast also arose from conflict with Novgorod. According to the Vichegodsko-Vyamskaya Chronicle, at 1367 peace treaty between the two ceded the Perm, Pechora, Mezhin, and Koroga regions to the Muscovite Grand Prince. Despite the agreement, Novgorod objected and when Moscow established a bishopric in Perm in 1383. Military forces representing the former's commercial and religious interests were dispatched in 1385 and in 1386 they waged war on the Upper Volga, the Vichegda region and Yushchug. As a result, Stefan, the man to whom Moscow had entrusted the new see, went to Novgorod and came to terms with the archbishopric there. 
Novgorod, though, continued to claim the Perm and Pechora territories in its treaties with other princes until the 1470s. It was no secret, really, that Muscovite princes had been interested in areas to their northeast for some time already. Traces of activity in this region can be found in Muscovite Gramati, official or state documents, Gramate, which is uh, also kind of how we call books these days, Gramata in Latvian, but Gramata in Russian literally means legal documents. Their uh, word for book is Kniga, which is a whole different meaning, you know, language similarities. And this is dating from the time of Ivan I Kalita, who lived from 1328 to 1340. Well, he ruled from that time, respectively. Some notion of the threat these interests posed to Novgorod may be gained from the contents of a number of Novgorodian documents. A 1397 regulatory charter, or literally, rules book, of the Grand Prince Vasily Dmitrievich, Tomny, by the way, just a side note, that was his uh, nickname, contained a complete list of settlements that comprised Novgorod's holdings in the Dvina region. And again, Dvina can refer to Daugava in this case, which is Severnaya Dvina. There's also Zapadnaya Dvina. A number of other 14th century gramata speak of settlements springing up along the Vaga River, possibly as early as 1314 and certainly by the end of the century. With such a stake in the area, the harm a military stronger than Moscow could inflict on Novgorod's commerce was, indeed, extremely serious. Following the success along the Vichyk do Pyrm, Moscow sought to seize the Dvina land from Novgorod as well. However, at this time, Novgorod offered more determined and successful resistance. Novgorod's apparent willingness to allow Muscovy to take the Perm and other regions, while doggedly refusing to give up the Dvina, is perhaps best explained by the nature of goods each provided. The Perm region, despite its ability to supply sable and other luxury furs, was less valuable to Novgorod than it was to Moscow, for precisely this single ability. The Dvina territory, on the other hand, was the source of a variety of products, including fish, sable, honey, wax, silver, copper, river pearls, walrus tusks, and most importantly, the grey squirrel. We still have a lot of those running around today. Truck in the pelts of this final item formed the basis of the Novgorod Hansa trade of the 14th century. Mutual interest in these territories, combined with Muscovy's jealousy of Novgorod's trade with the West and its continued existence, free from Muscovite control, led to a prolonged period of friction between the two. In spite of occasional skirmishes and Moscow's gradual whittling away of Novgorod's privileges, Moscow's northern adversary refused to acquiesce. Acutely aware of Moscow's designs on its territory, Novgorod had made arrangements with Casimir IV of Poland and Lithuania to become Novgorod's protector in the event of serious Muscovite aggression. But events came to a head in 1471. Novgorod's clergy did not want the protection of a Catholic king and the metropolitan of Moscow, having learned of the arrangement, demanded that something be done to prevent it. Giving such a volatile situation, an excuse for war was easily found, and one began that same year. By 1478, Novgorod's capitulation to Moscow was complete, and henceforward the history of Russian eastward expansion was to be the history of Moscovite expansion. And here we move on to a whole different subject here, but yeah, I know that we're moving to Alaska, and all the criminals there and all the fun stuff, but some things... Really, 
need to be said before. So, yeah, I'm really happy about how this multi-part subject is turning out. The 15th and 16th centuries marked the transformation of the Principality of Moscow into a powerful Eastern European state. Like Novgorod, Moscow was primarily interested in exploiting the fur resources of the north for its burgeoning foreign trade. It was already known that some of the best luxury furs, ermine and especially sable, the so-called gold of ancient Rus, were obtained from beyond the Ural Mountains. Moscow combined the legacy of Novgorodian commercial expansion to the northeast with the aggressive Muscovite program of the gathering of the Russian lands, which was meant to consolidate the absolute rule of the Grand Prince of Moscow over all the Rus principalities. A thing that, if you know something about today's policies, is um, still active, but this gathering of the Russian lands, yeah, this whole thing begins with the colonization efforts of pre-Russia Muscovy. One of the results of this merger of policy and practice was an, quote, intensification and extension of Russian eastward expansion, end quote. And this, by the way, is by our friend James Gibson, which you might have heard in other podcasts, but he's written about this as well in his book, quote, Feeding the Russian Fur Trade, Provisionment of the Okhotsk Seaboard and the Kamchatka Peninsula from 1639 to 1856. So yeah, this is one of the few times where I actually get to quote Gibson here, which is pretty nice, as, like I said, you've probably heard him on other shows. The route to the northeast corner of Siberia, which both Novgorod and Moscow had exploited by the 1480s, and into which Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan the Great, name him as you will, 1462-1505, ruling tights, obviously, had sent a number of punitive expeditions during the latter years of his reign. This proved to be one of what was fraught with difficulties. Roughly 800 kilometers to the south lay an easier way to the Siberian treasure house. However, until the mid-16th century, this road to Siberia was blocked by the Khanate of Kazan, the most powerful of the various Tartar principalities that had formed in the wake of the Golden Horde's dissolution. Neither Kazan nor any of the smaller Tartar states, scattered throughout western Siberia and modern-day Kazakhstan, had ever seriously challenged the Tsars of Moscow, but each could be a serious nuisance, specifically when allied with Osyatsk modern Kanti or Vogul, modern Manshi, tribes of Siberia's northwest, because those tribes really did not enjoy the presence and, well, neighborhood of the Muscovites. Kazan was most troublesome of all, and it was this city that the young Ivan the Terrible, Ivan IV, Grozny, made the object of his first foreign campaign. While Ivan modernized his armies and reorganized his government apparatus to prepare for war, Russia's senior churchmen, quote, cheered his campaign as a crusade of the cross against the Muslim crescent, end quote. Even though it was nothing more than, well, blatant colonization. Great expectations for a successful campaign were not long in being met, for in early October 1552, Kazan was taken and the river routes that flowed from the Ural Mountains to the Volga River, the most important being the Chusovaya, now lay open and at full Moscow's disposal. As a symbol of Moscow's confidence and determination to compete successfully with other European nations in empire building, perhaps nothing is as telling as the appending of additional tiles to a monarch's name following the acquisition of new territories. In the case of Muscovy, 
Such honorifics might be added before regions and corporation, and Siberia is a very well interesting case in point that just shows how much stuff can you add to your, well, single Zardom's name. When recounting the experiences of a 1581 papal delegation to Moscow, the papal legate and the mission chief, Father Antonio Possevino, makes no mention of Siberia in his description of Tsar's possessions, yet includes among his titles, Lord and Grand Prince of all Siberia. Indeed, from at least of 1555, well, these numbers just rhyme, the phrase, which means, and of all Siberian lands and the northern lands a true ruler, appears in the Tsar's title. According to at least one author, the reference to Siberia at such an early date was, quote, based on Prince Yediker placing himself under Ivan IV's protection with an offer of tribute, which was then collected. And this comes from Hugh F. Graham. Again, we use somewhat famous stories. This is from the Missio Muscovita in the lecture series of the Canadian-American Slavic Studies, volume 6, number 3. And by the way, printed in 1972, because I like to use Western sources from the Soviet era, because, well, they tend to be way more open than today. The removal of Kazan as a serious obstacle did not immediately translate into unhindered Russian access to Siberia. Native tribes inhabited much of the territory to the west of Urals. Indeed, in the 16th century, in large part because of Kazan, Russians had not yet settled beyond a few stretches of the middle Volga, let alone the river systems and lands between it and the mountains. In the 1630s, settlements existed only around strong points established in the late 16th century, such as that, quote, the entire expanse of the Volga from Tetusha to Samara was completely unsettled and open to the movement of the Nogais and other nomads as well as to Cossack brigands, end quote. This comes from Barushkin, Pramyšlenie Pretoriacije Ruskich Targovich Ljudzi v 17. Vieke, or... Uh, the Industrial Enterprises of the Russian Trading Peoples in the 17th Century, printed in 1940, by the way. Thus, it was imperative from Moscow's point of view that the Russians begin to establish a presence in the region. But to whom would be entrusted such an undertaking? The Tsar's treasury could not afford to bankroll any sustained military effort to acquire the territory, and in any case, soldiers were definitely, absolutely not settlers, something that the later Soviet state would not take to heart. The task eventually fell to, or perhaps more accurately, was sought by the Stroganov family. If you know the dish, then this is where it comes from, the famous Stroganov, or Bev Stroganov, as some of you know this beef and sauce food. Yeah, this comes from the family, as it was one of their favorite dishes which at the time was one of Russia's most enterprising and by the late 16th century, one of its wealthiest families, owning a lot of slaves, in some cases a clear majority among all the nobles. Legend has it that they were descended from a Mongol aristocrat named Spiridon, who abandoned his Khan to join the service of Dmitry Donskoy, who uh, managed to rule from 1363 to 1389. Spiridon's grandson, Luka, became a salt boiler at the Slovichegosk salt lake, and while the records do not show how he rose above his peers, by the middle of the 15th century he had amassed enough of a fortune to pay part, and some sources truly say that all the ransom demanded for Moscow's Grand Prince Vasily the Blind, 
who again ruled from 1425 to 1462. And I have to thank uh, to the Russian Rulers podcast, by the way, because they're, well, bigger experts than I am in medieval Russia. So I went through their episodes and just checked and used the sources that they have given written form in their show notes for a lot of this. And uh, thank you, Russian Rulers Podcasts. And if you're interested in specifically medieval rulers of Russia, please go check out that show and tell them you came from the eastern border because, well, we by no means, well, compete with each other. It's just that I only touch, well, Tsarist Russia so rarely and he basically also stays away from the Soviet Union, so we're kind of doing different things. Besides, he's a United States American descendant from Russians, meanwhile I'm a Latvian who had, like, born in the Soviet Union. But that's another tangent. Anyway, Vasily the Blind was captured by his Mongol captors, and this ransom was paid by Spiridon's grandson, Luka. The redemption was a calculated risk on Luka's part, since Moscow's rulers had not yet completed gathering the Russian lands, and in one of Moscow's rivals, had emerged victorious, Luca's loyalties could have cost him dearly. Nonetheless, his foresight paid handsome dividends to his descendants, for Moscow's Grand Princess and later Tsars remembered his generosity very well. Luca's grandson, Anika, in his turn, laid the foundations of the commercial empire that made the Strogonovs immensely wealthy. During the 1520s and 1530s, he bought up the salt works of his neighbors. But instead of continuing to use traditional methods to obtain salt from the lake water, because we're talking about the very brimy lakes, obviously not totally um, fresh water, he imported experts from Europe who taught him how to pump water saturated with salt from underground springs. The upshot was that Russia's dependence on trade with the Hans and other foreigners to provide the extra salt Russia required was just broken. Anika gave the Russians their first native source of salt large enough to meet their needs, and by dint of a monopoly on its sale, the Stroganov's fortune grew larger than many, many other nobles of the time. Hey guys, Annette here. Thanks so much for tuning in to our new episode of The Eastern Border. I would like to say a special thank you to all of our Patreons for supporting our show, even through these tough pandemic times. You guys are what keeps us going strong, despite these unpleasant circumstances. So really, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. And if you're still not a Patreon and are considering becoming one, head over to patreon.com slash the eastern border to find out how you too can support our show. Thank you again, everyone. Stay safe and enjoy the show. This podcast brought to you by Russian voiceovers. Enjoy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? 
United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Perhaps the most interesting thing that Annika did and his shrewdest, most coolest business decision was to begin trading salt for furs, specifically sable and uh, the very desired and awesome black arctic fox. Then, having obtained the Tsar's permission to trade directly with the English merchants at the mouth of the Dvina River, he traded the furs for western luxury goods, which in turn were exchanged with his countrymen for more furs. Of course, the best furs were reserved as gifts for the Tsar and his favorites at court. Thus, when the defeat of Kazan lay bare, well, all the virgin territory and exploration and development uh, was just happening, and the Stroganovs were, obviously, at the forefront of those hoping to be granted royal charters to operate in these new lands. Before Kazan's conquest, Stroganov agents had explored the regions beyond the city and discovered new salt springs at Solykamsk. This territory, which became the Russian province of Perm, attached the Stroganov's interest for this and other related reasons. The soil could be tilled more easily than in the north, thus decreasing the cost of feeding the labor force. Serfs, that is. River transport to Moscow was more direct, soil production could be increased at a lower cost, and Solykamsk provided easier access to Siberia's furs than did Solvichigotsk. Given the family history of gift-giving and a quote-unquote loyal service to the Tsars, a straightforward request would suffice to make Perm theirs. No fool, Ivan the Terrible recognized the Stroganov capacity for making money in remote areas and planned to turn the capability to the treasury's advantage. Aware that it was investment in the treasury's future rather than its present, Ivan, in 1558, released three and three-quarter million hectares of so-called, quote, uninhabited lands, black forests, wild rivers, and lakes, uninhabited islands and marshlands laying along both banks of the Kama River to the Chushovaya River, end quote, to um, Anika's eldest son, Grigori. Provisions to the lease allowed Grigori to develop the land as he saw fit, along as any gold, silver, copper, or tin deposits that were found were reported to the authorities. In return, his new enterprises were exempted from taxes for 20 years. Yes, 20 years. On a smaller scale, those living on or passing through Stroganov lands were allowed to buy and sell their goods duty-free, which was a big thing in the period. Well, in point, you know, you can, like, take a look at all the internal taxes levied at the time within the Holy Roman Empire or France or etc., Grigori also received royal dispension to build a fortified town along the Siberian frontier and to quote <clears throat> a letter patent in Dmitrishin Krovkart Vogan Vogan, Russia's Conquest, Part 4, <clears throat> and place cannon and defense guns in that town and at his own expense to station cannoneers and gunners and gate guards there to protect the town against the Nogai people and other hordes. End quote. In addition, the Stroganovs and their men became a jurisdiction unto themselves. 
A supplementary charter of 1564 stated that, quote, the Tsar's officials cannot handle cases of the Stroganovs and their men unless the latter commit murder or are caught while plundering, end quote. Such privileges convey some appreciation of the Tsar's estimation of the Stroganovs' worth to the estate. The point to be made by the preceding expression of the Stroganovs' wealth and influence it is that it emphasizes the government's relative inability and, or, or both, and willingness to lead the push into Siberia and would rather, like, seems that they would leave it to private hands, and the degree of latitude the Stroganovs had in basically deciding what to do with their new, well, acquired um, properties. This combination of factors would play an important role in the years to come. Moreover, if it's clear it was not the government that spearheaded uh, the Siberian initiative, the record is somewhat mukier, even murkier really, concerning whether the Cossacks who crossed the Urals and defended Khan Khuchum did so at the Stroganov's behest, or simply to satisfy their own desires for adventure and plunder. There are three basic theories concerning the early phase of Siberia's annexation to Russia. The first is based on late 16th and early 17th century ambassadorial ministry, Posoisky Prekaz, documents and declarations of diplomats, the first expedition of service, Cossacks was sent to Siberia by the Suprema Authority, that is, the Tsar. Several historians contend that by late 16th century, through the centralization of power, the, quote, state alone was left with the organization, the funds and the impetus for sustained and large-scale expansion and colonization, end quote. And this comes from uh, C.M. Faust's Russian expansion to the East through the 18th century, in uh, the Journal of the Economic History, printed in 1961, mind you. However, the Levoy afforded the Strogodovs in the Perm region, and the fact that the Russia's forces were embroiled in the West with, well, our buddy Swedish, and the uh, Pospolita or Rzeczpospolita, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, in the Livonian War, which involved us very, very directly here in Latvia, because we were a part of Livonia back then, make this unlikely. Indeed, this point of view seems to overlook the seriousness of the drain of treasury which the Livonian War presented and ignores the fact that the centralization of powers in the person of the Tsar was still a work in progress. We are, after all, a far, far away from absolutism. And this view is one that would be disrupted by the time of troubles, smutnoye vreme, and not really completed until the reign of Peter the Great, more than a hundred years later. Such ministerial documents more likely reflect an awareness of the event in Stroganov Holdings and beyond, and perhaps a belated attempt to lend official sanction to what the Cossacks had already done in the name of the Tsar. The second conception emphasizes Stroganov's role and holds that they invited Yermak and his band to their lands, outfitted them to the tune of 20,000 rubles or something like that, it's a huge amount of money for the time, and just, you know, sent them off to, quote, defend the great permanent eastern march of Christianity, and, end quote, and just, you know, well, do your thing, basically. Do that from the Nogai people, who were all Muslims at the time, as well as Vogul and Ostia raiders. The latter two tribes, branches of which lived on both sides of the Urals, were tributaries at the time of the Siberian Khanate. In addition, it was kind of hoped Yermak's force would, you know, locate easily traverse roads across the mountains, you know, find a shortcut, do some nice things here and there, and, you know, if they fail, nothing much lost, if they succeed, well then, it's free real estate, comrades, free real estate, something of that sort. Finally, the third point of view, which, according to Shirnikov, originated in folktales, 
but contends that the Cossacks themselves conceived and carried out the first so-called invasion of Siberia. Versions of this theory suggest that Yermak took supplies from Maxim Stroganov, quote, under threat, not at all with honor, but wanted to kill him and plunder his grain and bring to ruin his house and those living here, end quote. This comes from Sibirskiya Dietopis, cited in Dvoritskaya's Offizialnoi i Formalnoi Otsetka Pohoda Yermaka. It's a huge-ass document from 1958 with many, many other Soviet reference points. There is also a fourth theory that could be considered a variant, sort of, kind of the third. One that was promulgated by a majority of Soviet scholars, which I've read a lot and... Uh, which I take with a bit of a grain of salt here, but, well, would be a shame if I wouldn't mention it. Which held that the taming of Siberia, quote, was accomplished by the initiative of the simple Russian people, the masses. This conclusion is probably based on nothing more than the fact that Yermak and his companions had come from the so-called people, Narod. That they were not nobles, that they were not one of the upper classes, but instead had come from the very same people that the majority of Russia at the same time were, that is, the serfs. However, the Cossack way of life was sufficiently differentiated from that of the peasant masses that the two should be considered absolutely distinct. I mean, this is just not the same to be a peasant and a Cossack, specifically at this era. Peasant initiative existed only yet as much as when their new territories were opened, Thousands might abandon their obligations to lord and state, and, you know, because they didn't want to be serfs again in European Russia, and they just moved to Siberia to start new. Afterwards, they would be stopped and controlled, but at this period, well, uh, kind of hard to control mass movement of these serfs. And this was a gradual process that the government at first tried to arrest, and over which it later merely tried to exercise a somewhat weenier of control. It's like, yeah, yeah, we're, uh, we're doing something. Those peasants moving away from your property, yeah, we're, um, uh, oh, look, it's, 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 uh, six o'clock already, uh, my work, my work day is over, I will definitely look at this tomorrow morning. Whichever version is most accurate, uh, except the fourth one, which totally isn't, there can be no doubt that Yermak and his Cossacks were in Strogonov territory by the autumn of 1581. And whether by Strogonov invitation, or perhaps not, they had reason to be on the move from the Volga, for government troops were hunting them. Seriously, the, the same government that the first theory suggests sent them. Yeah, they were on the run now because they were being hunted for the acts of, quote, acts of piracy perpetuated against Russian merchants as diplomats as well as against Russian southern Tsar and Tatar neighbors. Because these guys, they weren't just there to colonize, they were like, Ah, free real estate, take everything, rob from everyone, same deal, who cares? Well, turns out some people do care when their diplomatic relationships got fucking destroyed, right? In any event, Cossack experience in fighting against the nomadic peoples in Russia's southern borderlands would have been of great value to Strogonovs in their efforts to quell the periodic raids they suffered at the hands of Trans-Ural and Siberian tribes. Indeed, the Volga and Don Cossacks, which are most part today's Ukrainians, waged their own little interrupted so-called little war with nomadic hordes who had long outnumbered them. Bearing this in mind, evidence suggests that the Strogonovs made use of the royal ascent granted to them to assemble armed men to defend their lands and formed a detachment of hired Cossacks. 
Their function, however, was fairly tightly prescribed by government regulations. Any force retained was supposed to be used only and only as a defensive entity. Uh, spoiler alert, it uh, totally wasn't, but that's, that's okay. <clears throat> only uh, tightly prescribed by government regulations. Any force retained was supposed to be used only as a defensive entity within the confines of Strogonov territory, yet was expected to be mobile enough to move from town to town, outpost to outpost, as circumstances dictated. On, you know, balancing this out, unless the Tsar had approved attacks against Siberian and other tribes, yeah, they were to be um, avoided a bit. Because to do so risks raising the ire of the Khan of Sibir, and, you know, horse archers and bad stuff might happen, which would leave towns defenseless against some unexpected attacks and incurring the Tsar's wrath. A grammata, addressed to Maxim and Nikita Strogonov, illustrates these uh, points rather effectively, and this is a bit long, so prepare for it. And this comes from um, the old Russian, so um, it's going to be a fun quote. <clears throat> quote. Vasily Pereplitsyn has written to us from Perm that on September the 1st you sent out from your Ostrogs the Volga Ataman and Cossacks, Yermak and his men to find the Votyaks and the Voguls in Pelim and other Siberian places. That same day the Pelim prince assembled Siberians and Voguls and attacked our holdings at Perm and came to the town and Ostrog at Cherden and killed our people and caused many losses to our subjects. This happened because of your treason. You turned the Vogels and the Votyaks and the Pelims against us. You provoked them and fought them, and because you aroused the Sultan of Siberia, you brought about quarrels between us. You invited Volga Atamans into your service and hired brigands for your Ostrogs without our Ukaz, which is a direct order. These Atamans and Cossacks have previously embroiled us in quarrels with the Nogai Horde, and also robbed our own people and caused them many losses. Then they attempt to conceal their guilt by pretending that they were defending our lands in Perm. They did this with your support, and document breaks here, but we continue. You should not have sent those Cossacks out to the military foray at that time. You should have sent your men out from your Ostrogs to defend our lands in Perm. In accordance with this, our grammata, you are immediately to send to Cherdian all the Cossacks who have returned from the military campaign. If you do not send these Volga Cossacks, the Ataman Yermak Timofeyev, and his men out from your Ostorgs to Perm, and if because of your disobedience at some time in the future the Vogels and the Peliums and the Siberian Sultan inflict some disaster on Perm, then our fearful wrath will be visited upon you because of this and we will order that all the Atamans and Cossacks who obeyed and served you, and thereby deserted their lands, be hanged. End quote. By the time the Gramata would have reached the Stroganovs, it was written in November 16, 1582, Yermak and his men were long gone. Had it been possible to heed the Tsar's orders and recall them, the history of Siberia's association with Russia may have turned out quite a bit differently. By all accounts, the Cossacks' advance across the Urals was surprisingly swift. In contrast to Danilevsky's assessment, Barushkin, another Soviet historian, offers a more formidable vision of the sort of obstacle presented by these mountains. Quote, the crossing of the Ural Mountains was the most difficult part of the journey. The coming, the peaks of which were lost in the clouds, and whose length was from sea to sea, 
frightened travelers to this forbidding wilderness. It was an empty place. Yet, nonetheless, Yermak and his band did cross them, sailing up the Chushovaya until the river grew too narrow and shallow for the boats, then portaging across the mountains and descending the eastern slopes by river. Within five weeks of leaving the Stroganov fort in the Chushovaya, that was their staging area. The Cossacks had entered Siberia and sown the strongest stage yet in the seam that would finally and completely bind Siberia to Russia. And this is what will end today. And thank you for listening. But I know that we're moving through this a bit slowly, but I want to give this full justice because I wanted to do a short series on just, you know, Russian Alaska. But it turned out that exploring the whole conquest and colonization of Siberia is a, such an interesting subject that I just must move on. And besides, making Stalin series specifically now is a very hard process for me, and I really want to give a break to the political episodes. Therefore, we're going to try our best to finish these colonization series, and I hope you like them. Please support us on Patreon and donate to us by clicking the donate button on the easternboard.lv page. Tell about us to your friends and, well, give us some good reviews. We're trying our best here. And I hope you truly enjoy the show, because Yermak is coming back, things are happening in Siberia, and it's about to get a lot more bloody, a lot more violent, and a lot more interesting. Do svidaniya, tavarish. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 